Well, good morning, Anchorage Grace. Greetings from Southern California. The uh, Grace Community Church is the Grace Outpost in the northern part of the San Fernando Valley, and I'm grateful to be here at this Grace Outpost in uh, Anchorage, Alaska, and happy Father's Day. Um, I, too, am a father and uh, have two children, 33. My daughter turned 33 this week on Thursday, son 25, and I did get to be a grandparent this year, and it's, a, uh, it's what it's cracked up to be. It's a blessing and a pleasure and a joy, and I think certainly if you're a father like I am, there's things you learn along the way that you wish you would have done, and you're hoping to kind of reinvent yourself with your grandchildren. And uh, I also like the idea that if I don't want to, I don't have to. (laughs) Um, So it's a blessing. Greetings from the uh, Masters University. I am the campus pastor there. We have a GO team here, which I'm proud to be part of their life and ministry. And they're a joy to me. And hopefully I am a blessing to them periodically. I'm really grateful for the kindred camaraderie we share, our church and your church, your ministry and our ministry, uh, the common convictions, the common affections that are evident and obvious. Jeff's a good friend and Judy, and we're just grateful for the fellowship we enjoy. Matter of fact, you may have heard of the Master's Fellowship. It's like-minded, sharing convictions and affections, pastors and ministries that uh, have a heart to stand for the things that matter, uncommon convictions, unfortunately, today. And We share that camaraderie with you. We know we have a seminary extension here, and the Master's Seminary is a part of my life as well, and so I feel I'm at home, and I'm glad to be in your state, and uh, the weather was so perfect last time. I told Jeff, this is an illusion. I know it must get cold. I know it must get dark, Um, but I've enjoyed the short time we've been here, and I certainly enjoy having my wife with me, so thank you to those of you who have made us feel welcome. And hopefully we can be a blessing today. Take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. You know, when uh, I was invited to join you this weekend to talk about the church, the family, and the Christian and the culture, I wrestled with what I would want to encourage you with and challenge you with. And I finished this semester at the university with somewhat of a short meditational devotional. Um, I spend time periodically, um, really daily is my intention, to take some scripture that resonates with me and to make it my meditation. And this short statement, this verse uh, we're going to talk about today was a meditation that I wanted to turn into an exhortation for you this morning as a sermon. We are going to talk about the family, but we're going to talk about the family of God, and we're going to talk about the individuals in the family. And I want to say to you fathers, regardless of how you feel, there's no sociological study done to date that doesn't recognize the greatest influence in the home is the dad, not the mom. Moms are influential, but no study determines that mothers are the most impactful players in the family. And that is not to diminish a mother. It is to elevate the importance of a father and his influence. Of those who come to faith, often it is said the chief influencer influencer in their coming to faith was the leader of the home, their father. And the statistics are undeniable, and I, I I just want to simply encourage you to not underestimate the importance of your influence. 
And I also want to encourage you as a Christian, as a member of the family of God, to recognize you have influence. And I have a prayer today, and that is that you will live a kind of Christianity that recognizes the conviction that I have the power to influence the world. Because as a Christian in this culture, you can say, it feels like there's nothing we can do, or it feels like the tide is so strong, the current so swift, uh, that we just can't really impact our culture. And that would not be consistent with the plain declaration of the one who is in charge of everything, the truth teller himself, the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he says is found in Matthew chapter 5 about who we are and the impact we can have or should have. You know Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the great sermon on the mount. This is the king of the kingdom talking about the characteristics, the constitution of the kingdom, the means to blessing, and the means to being a blessing. And housed in one verse, which is my focus today, is both a challenge and an encouragement. It is a declaration. It's a reality. Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Truth is reality. Truth is the way it is. Not the way it might be, but the way that it is. And there's a truth statement in Matthew chapter 5 that involves you. Involves you as an individual, involves you as a Christian, and involves you as a church, the collective you and the individual you. And I want to encourage you with this declaration, and I want to challenge you with it. Because what Alaska needs is what every state needs eternal, impactful, difference-making influence. Your home needs it. Your workplace needs it. Your neighborhood needs it. And you have the capacity to do it. On the authority of the Word of God, listen to these words. After Jesus sits down, opens his mouth, which is an idiomatic way of saying he's going to pour out his heart in authoritative declaration as the king... And he says, this is the path to blessing nine times. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. These are the characteristics that invite divine blessing from heaven. And then he begins in verse 13, our verse for today. This is the way to be a blessing. Verse 13, declarative statement, present, active, indicative. It's a fact. It's always a fact. It's eternally a fact. You are says Jesus, the king, the salt of the earth, earth, the whole planet. But if the salt has become tasteless, that is, it's, it's lost its properties of salt. It no longer possesses salt-like capacity. But if salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? How will it recover its influence and potential? It is, if it's no longer salty, if it's become tasteless, if it's been void of its natural properties, it is no longer good for anything. Now let that sit on you. You, kingdom citizens, are the salt of the earth. But if you've lost your saltiness, if you become tasteless, 
Jesus makes an authoritative statement, you're no longer good for anything. You're not good for anything that matters from an eternal vantage point. The things of the kingdom, the impactful eternal influence that is yours because of who you are is forfeited. You're no longer good for anything. Now listen to this, this sobering statement, except to be thrown out, to be discarded as no longer useful, no longer valuable, not good for anything, a waste and a loss, and to be trampled underfoot by men. Which is a figurative way of saying, not only is there no longer usefulness, you've been discarded, but you're not respected. You're disdained. You're just here to be walked on. The only value you have left is to be the salt on the roadway. But you are not meant to be that way. You're not meant to be Anchorage Grace. You are not meant to be contemptible, useless, or discarded. And the reason is because you are the salt of the earth. You are something. Not you might be something, you are something, and as that something, salt, you're to be something, tasty, savorable, someone who produces an effect that is consistent with the influence of salt. And if you are who you're supposed to be, you are something, therefore you need to be something, and listen to this, and it guarantees your life will mean something. The reason... Salt has influence. Salt has impact. Salt changes things. It affects reality. So I believe that Jesus is saying to his disciples, irrespective of how it feels, here's a reality. And if you fulfill your reality and you don't forfeit it or trade it in for something lesser, if you live out the reality of who you are, The world will be different. The whole world will be different. I'm not arguing for the coming of the kingdom of God in a way that sees us progressively get better. I'm saying that while we are here as agents of influence, we can have impact. And do not underestimate that impact. So my hope today is that I'll challenge you with a reality and I'll comfort you with that same reality. You are not impotent. You have influence. Use it and maximize it. So this is a call and a charge to be something because you are something. Therefore, your life will mean something. So I want to talk about the nature of salt. And some of you may be familiar with some of this. I'm going to argue that, or at least I believe that, at least for some of us, we don't understand the implication. And the implication of this figure, this metaphor, this saying, you are the salt contextually has meaning. And when the hearer would have heard what Jesus said, this is the kind of thinking that would have emerged. What do you mean by that? What, what is salt? Let me say a few general things about it in this context. If you were in that culture, you would understand a couple of things about salt that we might not comprehend or understand. Number one, in the ancient world, salt was highly valued. It was valuable. The Greeks called salt divine had godlike qualities. There is nothing, said the Romans, more useful than the sun and salt. 
One of the greatest compliments you could give someone at that time was to call them the salt of the earth. It was a way of saying your life is meaningful, valuable. You have something to contribute. It's respectable. Someone whose life counted. Often, Roman soldiers were paid in salt. It was a form of currency, which is why we got the saying, that guy is not worth his salt. He's not useful. He's not valuable. He's not a contributor. He's not doing his job. So salt was valuable in the ancient world. It was useful. And by analogy, Jesus is saying the Christian, kingdom citizens, are meant to be useful and valuable all over the earth. And the reason they are to do so is because they possess certain qualities. And the first quality, the first thing you are because you are salt, is you're meant to be a picture of purity. The first symbol of salt in the Old Testament as well as at that time when Jesus spoke these words is salt was considered a symbol of purity. Matter of fact, the Romans said that that salt was the purest of all things because it came from the purest of all things, the sun and the sea. In the Old Testament, offerings made to God were offered, oblations of meat, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, were offered with salt. The salt was an offering symbolizing purity in the offering, because salt is a symbol of purity. In the Old Testament, among the Jews, in the Roman culture in which these words were spoken, salt was a picture and symbol of purity. And often it was found stored in mounds that were glistening white and the sun would hit it and it would evidence the reality of that purity. Second Kings brings this home in terms of the powerful purifying power of salt. This illustration coming out of Second Kings chapter 2 when Elisha comes to Jericho. And in Second Kings 2.19 The men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, now the situation of this city is pleasant. Now, it's a reference to Jericho being an oasis-type community with palms, the city of palms in the desert. This is a pleasant place to live. But the water is bad. And the land is unfruitful. It's It's barren. It's not fertile. And Elisha said, Bring me a new jar. And put salt in it. So they brought it to Elisha, and he went out to the spring of water, and he threw salt into it. And he said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from these waters death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters, says the writer of Kings, have been purified to this day. Why? The addition of salt. Now, let me make an application. In Christ, you are a vessel. You're a new creation. You possess the qualities of the Spirit of God that provides you the capacity as you pour your life out into your culture and into your community to be an agent of purifying power. You are a picture of purity with influence. 
Let me give you a couple of categories to think about as you examine your potential in the world in which you live. Pure in what way? You're to be a picture of purity in four ways I want to highlight. The first is your speech. The second is your conduct. The third is your attitude. And the fourth is your motive. Titus 2.7, Paul says to the Cretan church. And you remember Crete was a perverse, debauched culture. There was a testimony about the Cretans. They're lazy gluttons. They're liars. And this testimony, Paul said, is true. So to the church in Crete, Paul says to Titus, tell the Christians, the salt on that island in the Mediterranean, tell them this, even the young, in all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, conduct, with purity in truth, purity of doctrine, dignified. Sound in speech, which is above reproach. That's blameless words. So that the opponent, the adversary, will be put to shame because they have nothing bad to say about you. In other words, the purity of your life, doctrine, behavior, the nobility of your attitudes and words is such a compelling influence. There's no resistance that can legitimately be made. You're to be an icon of integrity, Christian, salt of the earth. You're to communicate to your culture what morality looks like, what good behavior and good deeds look like, what good attitudes look like. Barclay says the Christian must be the person who holds aloft the standard of moral purity and noble integrity, speech, conduct, even in thought. And he is the one, the Christian, who makes the right and the best seem acceptable and credible. Accessible in terms of its capacity to be experienced. Let me give you a few more verses as it relates to speech. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be always with grace. And seasoned with what? Say it. Salt. Salt is the purity of your speech. Graciousness is the attitude with which you say what you say. The content, pure, seasoned with salt. The delivery, gracious. Look back with me at Ephesians chapter 5, and let me bring home just uh, by way of application and a parallel passage, since we're parked in one verse, I want to unpack its influence or its impact, import from a few other places related to the themes here. You're the salt of the earth. How do you salt the earth? By how you talk. How do you salt the earth? By the way you conduct yourself. How do you salt the earth? Not by angry attitudes, but by gracious attitudes. Verse 29, familiar real estate, but listen to these words again, chapter 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word unwholesome is rotten, impure, spoiled, not healthy. It is no unwholesome word, no rotten words, 
pure words, healthy words. No unwholesome word. Don't let it proceed from your mouth, but only. Do you see the only? No exceptions, no exclusions. Only such a word as is good for edification, uplifting. Not destructive or dismantling. According to the need of the moment. It's appropriate, it's proper, it's timely, it's life-giving and uplifting that it might give grace to those who hear. When people hear a Christian talk who's a salt of the earth, they ought to be able to benefit by the exchange of those words. Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How? By spoiled speech, impure speech, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And the word grief means to create such dissatisfaction and, and, and grief, that there is injury. God is hurt by. Do you hear that? You don't just hurt the person that that speech is heard by. God is hurt by. It grieves him. It is anguish. It is a word full of pathos. It's one thing to hurt a human being. It's another thing to hurt the heart of God, which is what a believer does, a kingdom citizen does, when their speech is not pure and gracious and noble. Let's talk attitude, verse 31. Let all bitterness, decree, it means you've been injured. Bitterness is the response to injury. Listen, you live in a fallen world, people in close proximity because of the fall, our humanity, there's injury. Pakria comes from the Greek word to stab. People wound people. Even people who love people can wound people. If you're a human being in the context of the church or this culture, in your home and in your workplace, you can be injured. Pakria is the word that has to do with, I've been injured. And it says, verse 31, let the effect of that injury, bitterness. That's the inflammation that comes from being stabbed. And the wrath and anger which follow, wrath is heat. It's like the wound gets festered and and infected. That's wrath. It's red. It hurts. It's sensitive. Anger is when it bubbles out, or it explodes, and it, it demonstrates itself, this injury, in a retaliatory action which says, I'm going to address this in a way that the Bible calls anger and clamor. Clamor is altercation. It can be verbal or it can be physical. You've hurt me. That injury has created heat and inflammation in me. It's gotten to the point where it bubbles out of me. And I express that hurt, if I'm strong enough, by toe-to-toe confrontation. I'm going to speak to you in an altercation of words. I'm going to address that injury. Or I'm going to, if I'm physically strong enough, go beyond the words to I'm actually going to have a fight. Clamor. It's a public expression of a frustration born in an injury. And it's driven by and includes malice. And if you're not strong enough, don't, I don't want to skip this. Slander happens. Slander is what you do when you can't go toe-to-toe. 
Slander is what you do behind somebody because you can't deal with them in strength. You're injured. You're going to deal with the injury, but you're going to go behind the back and say things or do things that are damaging to their reputation or situation. Now watch what 31 says. Let all of that be put away from you. It's a passive verb. Let it go. Because Christians who behave in a way that is worthy of the mercy we've shared and sung about, don't retaliate, they release injury and debt. Look at verse 32. There's two main verbs in verse 32. Be kind and be tenderhearted. They are active imperative verbs. They're non-negotiable. It's not an option. Hey, if you feel like it, do this. When injured, this is what you do. You must, present active, as an influencer and as a Christian, you are to be kind. You know what kindness is? Meeting a need. Kindness is displaying an attitude and a practical way. I want to do something that's a blessing to you, practically. But it gets bigger than that. And be tender-hearted. Now listen, you can resolve to be kind. I can grit my teeth and be kind. But I'll tell you what you can't grit your teeth and be tender-hearted. Tender-hearted is soft to the one who injured me. Listen, we're in an angry culture. Rage, words, hurt, hate, abuse. Those are language words that describe our culture. It's not a kind culture. But a Christian, because it's an injurious culture. And with the advent of the internet and the the perceived barrier of the distance between me and you, I can say stuff from the sanctuary of my home that can injure you. And it feels like there's no fences and no barriers. If I want to say it, I can say it. People get hurt. People hurt people. And a Christian is not to retaliate in kind. Yes, you will be injured, but what you do is you, instead of offering retaliation, clamor, and slander, instead of letting it build up, you let it go, and you display its opposite. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. You return, you don't return insult for insult, or evil for evil, but you give a blessing instead. You respond in reverse. And in Paul's words here in Ephesians 5, or 4 rather, you're kind. In the face of what? Injury. You're tenderhearted. To whom? The injurer. And you say, how in the world is a Christian supposed to behave like that in light of the reality that I've been hurt and I have a justification, a just claim to retaliate, to deal with this injury, this unacceptable reality. Verse 32. Be kind and tenderhearted. Those are the main verbs. What follows is a participle telling you how. By forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. 
All right, Anchorage Grace. Here's the way you make your world different. You respond in reverse. You, the recipient of great grace, give great grace. You don't go toe-to-toe. You're gracious with your words. And you're different in your attitudes. Philippians chapter 2 says the church who is to be the light in the world, living a blameless and circumspect life, they're to do all things without grumbling and disputing. They're to have a good attitude. Listen, you live in a grumble world. You can't watch the news and not want to grumble. Or is it different here in Anchorage? You understand what I mean? The stimuli will cause you to grumble and complain or to engage in a dispute as if your way is the the only way or their way is the wrong way, and you end up modeling something that contradicts what you are. You are the salt of the earth, pure in speech, gracious in attitude, upright in conduct, Look at chapter 5, just a few highlights. Be imitators of God, verse 1. Do what Jesus would do as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. You know what love is. We know love by this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. That's 1 John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16. You need to know 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. Sacrificial action, volitionally offered, sacrificial and beneficial while we were God's enemies, unconditional. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Love like he loved, forgive like he forgave, serve like he served, walk like Jesus would walk. And you say, I try. Let me tell you what walking like Jesus walked requires. Not trying, but deciding and depending. Karen and I have been listening to to a sermon series on walking in the Spirit, life in the Spirit, and one of the arguments of the author of this series says, listen, you want to walk in the Spirit? The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. This I say, do not walk in the flesh, but walk in the Spirit. You will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. How do you walk in the Spirit? You discover God's point of view on a matter... You decide, I'm going to do whatever Jesus would do in light of, his point of God's point of view on that matter. And then you cry out to God, asking God to empower you to do what you've decided to do based on God's point of view you've discovered. You cannot grit your teeth as a Christian. You can't love because you resolve to. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is the empowering work of God as I discover His point of view and I decide by faith to do what Jesus would do in light of that point of view. I am walking like a Christian walks in the Spirit. I am keeping step with the Spirit of God and therefore my reactions are governed by the power of God. You are the salt of the earth. 
Salty Christians, savory Christians, impactful Christians are spirit-led, filled Christians. And this call of First Ephesians chapter 5 is a call to behave like a Christian in attitude and in words, and get this, in the purity of our conduct and actions. Look at verse 3. But do not. You're a follower of Christ. You're an imitator of Christ. You're to walk as Christ. Do not let immorality, that's the word pornea, it's a general word for immoral behavior outside of the bounds of biblical prescription, whether you're watching it or doing it. Do not let immorality or any impurity, there it is, plain as it can be said, or greed, that's materialistic selfishness. I want it for me. It's meism. It's a form of idolatry. I was reading recently, and interestingly, a student of the human experience, a uh, psychologist actually, and I'm not certainly supportive of many things that psychologists would say, but I just found it interesting. Ed Diener from uh, the University of Illinois, a professor there, says materialism is toxic for happiness. Even rich materialists aren't as happy as those who care less about getting and spending. And then the article concluded by a university professor from Michigan, Christopher Peterson, who indicated, listen to this, that forgiveness is the trait most strongly linked to happiness, human happiness. And he called it the queen of all virtues. Verse 3, do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. Listen, I don't need to quote the stats to you, but there's not a significant difference between the moral behavior in many cases of believers and that of unbelievers. One out of five youth pastors views inappropriate images online. One out of seven pastors confess to doing the same. Well, this is not meant to beat up on leaders. It is meant to say we are in a challenge for our culture and for our testimony. And you are to be Christian, Anchorage Grace. Wherever you line up tomorrow morning, you are to be a picture of purity. By what you say, by what you do, by how you act, the attitudes and the motives that are expressed in your life. You're to be the illustration of real love in real time. Pure motive, 1 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says, I never came with flattering speech. I like to teach 1 Thessalonians 2, and when I get an opportunity, I do so, and one of the, because it's the best paradigm for maximizing your in, impact. It's how you impact the people that matter the most and the things that matter the most. And the foundation of influence, listen to me, is motivation. Why you do what you do. It's not self-centric. It's God-centric. It's not self-centric. It's for you-centric. Listen to Paul, 1 Thess 2.5. Never, I never came with flattering speech. Now, we use the word flattery, but let me tell you what it means. It means to tell somebody what they want to hear so you can get what you want to get. Flattery is inflating someone's what the word means. It's smooth talking. It's manipulative speech to get you 
because I give you what you want to hear, what I want from you. And Paul said, I didn't talk to get something from you. I didn't tell you what you wanted to hear so I could get something I wanted from you. Do nothing. I never came with flattering speech nor with a pretext for greed. In other words, I didn't want your stuff. My motivation wasn't for me. It was for you. And I didn't come to receive glory from men. You know what Paul's saying about real influence? Salty, savoring influence? It's for you. It's for his glory, and it's for you. It is not for me. Anchorage Grace, you want to be an influence? Well, you are. You have the potential of it. But it's got to be pure in motive. It's got to be for them, unselfish. It's got to be for him, to his glory. It's not about us. And it matters. There's a second thing I want to say by way of influence. The second thing that salt pictures, and that is salt, the nature of what salt is, sodium chloride, is a preservative. So what is a Christian? A picture of purity and a protector because they're a powerful preservative. The second quality of salt is preservation. What made salt so valuable in a world without refrigeration is its ability to preserve things, to preserve the value of things. It was commonly used to keep things from going bad. It was used to preserve meat from rot decay, putrefaction. Salt stops spoilage. They would bathe meat in salt water. They would saturate meats with salt, fish, to preserve it so that it wouldn't rot. Because salt stops spoilage, it curbs corruption. Salt deters decay. It preserves. Now listen, Here's a sobering thought. I wonder what the culture would look like if Christians were what we were supposed to be. Preservatives in a culture that is rotting. The Christian as the salt of the earth is to be a powerful preservative. And you understand this. There's people that when you're around them, you would never think about telling that story. You would never think about telling that joke. You would never think about turning on that station. You wouldn't do it. Why? Because they are influencing you by their perceived character and and maturity. You would never do it. That's who you're supposed to be. Every gathering ought to be different because you're there, because you're a man or woman who by your reputation and influence changes that reality and keeps it rich and healthy and good, and inhibits the behavior that is destructive. I like to play golf. I'm not so good at it, but I enjoy it. It's not life-giving. It's sometimes life-threatening or heart-threatening in terms of the frustration that it creates. But in my old life as a pastor in Birmingham, I had the privilege of playing at a couple of different clubs with some guys, and sometimes I would show up with one of the guys in my church, and they would partner us with two other guys, so we'd be a foursome. I never, ever 
started the conversation by saying, Hi, I'm Harry Walls. I'm the pastor of Shades Mountain Community Church. I just didn't tell them. I didn't want to do something to them. I didn't want them to be all fragile about how they would naturally act. But inevitably, the question we'd be asked, So, Harry, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian, and I'm a shepherd in the flock of God. And it may be said differently, but that's the sum of it. Well, guess what happened after that? Words changed. Stories changed. Jokes changed. Because of the perception that you don't say certain things around a preacher. Well, here's what I would like to plant as a seed thought in you. There's certain things that people ought not think about saying because they're around a Christian, Christ follower. You're an inhibitor of what? Bad behavior. You're a promoter of what preserves society. You're a truth teller. You're a God declarer. You believe in the Bible and you let people know why the truth has been given and why it can be trusted. You are a declarer that God is, and this is who God is. I've been infatuated recently, or at least impacted, maybe is a better way to say it, by the question to Jesus in Mark 12. So tell us, what is the first and foremost commandment? And everybody knows, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors, yourself, the one like unto it. You do these, you fulfill the whole law. All the law and the prophets hang on this commandment. Not these commandments, this commandment. Because loving God must display itself in loving people. But what's caught my attention lately, and I want to just emphasize it with you today, is what precedes that when Jesus answers that question. Before he talks about what God deserves and desires, and what ought to be displayed because you love him, love your neighbors yourself, is this statement. To the Jews known as the Shema. Shema comes from the Hebrew word which means hear. Hey, listen. I got your attention, didn't I? Sorry. It was louder than I wanted it to be. But I saw some heads go up for those of you that were sleeping. (laughs) Hear means pay attention to this. Hear means an emphatic, proactive, maybe with that not that much volume. But hey, listen to this. This is a declaration. This is an acknowledgement. This is a public claim. The Shema. Every morning, every night, every Jewish household. Every synagogue service, morning, the beginning of the service, and at the end of the service. Over top of every door in a Jewish home. Every door. Bedrooms and entrance door. The Shema. Here, oh, here's how it begins. The first and great commandment begins like this. Here. O Israel, those of you in my biblical covenant community, hear this. I want you to acknowledge this. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is a personal name. It's the Old Testament God. The creator God who has a personal name. Not just the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh is our God. And I'm declaring it. And then this, and Yahweh is one, Ikat. He's first, foremost, one of a kind, none like him. Here's a statement for God's people in the culture today. You want to be a preservative? You tell them that there is one God 
His name is Yahweh. He's revealed himself in the Bible, the Word of God, and in the person of the Son of God. This is who he is. This is how he is. And he has spoken. That preserves society. 81% of young people today do not believe the truth is absolute. It's the truth according to me. It's my truth. You are a declarer that God is the revealer of truth. And he's revealed it in his son. He's revealed it in his word. It's validated by history, geography, prophecy, and testimony. The word of God is God's word and he has spoken. And then with those words, with gracious speech and powerful, sweet, gracious, but bold influence, you speak the truth in love to a culture that needs to hear the truth. Oh, you may not persuade them, but I'm going to argue because the Word of God is living and active, you will influence them. You know what's happened to the culture, Christian culture? We've muted our voice. And if we are talking, we act like we're really mad. Listen, unbelievers do what unbelievers do. Sinners do what sinners do. You shouldn't be mad because sinners sin. It should make you sad. But you also have to remember, you were once such a sinner. Insulting your culture is communicating the truth in the grace that recognizes, I used to be that, I was dysfunctional too, and I needed a truth teller who would tell the truth and represent the God of truth so the world can be impacted by the reality of that truth. Can you say amen to that? I'm not preached here often enough to know whether you say amen, but you should. Because amen means, I agree with that. You know why you should? Because that's true. And what's going on in our culture is the absence of truth tellers who are truth validators by what? The purity of their life and conduct. I'm not talking perfection. I'm talking about the pattern. And if you fumble the ball, admit it. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Humility is an evidence of Christianity. Promote what preserves society. Resist what rots society. Be a voice that influences society. The Christian, says one commentator, must be a cleansing antiseptic in any society in which he happens to be. He must be the person who by his presence defeats corruption and makes it easier for others to be good. Be that Christian. Be that agent of influence. Be proactive. Be intentional. I told some of you this weekend, I'm staying at a hotel on Tudor Avenue. And across the street from my hotel where I'm staying with my wife is a Starbucks, and I'm a Starbucks person. I like their coffee, and I know it's not cool anymore, and you got to go to trendy places, but I'm just quite fine with their dark roast coffee. And I'm grateful it's across the street. Well, I walked over my first day. I flew in Thursday night. Friday morning, I walked into Starbucks, and it was a adorned in rainbow. Now, I've got a Starbucks in Valencia which is just outside of Los Angeles. I'm not talking like I'm in a conservative community. 
I've been to a lot of Starbucks. I've never been to a Starbucks this colorful. And it was not the adornment of, this is my celebration of the promise of God for protection against a future flood. This is a declaration of corruption. This is a declaration of confusion. This is a declaration and a, the truth is my truth. And I define my reality. This is a declaration of rebellion. I walked in and it was interesting. I've been to a lot of Starbucks and you would think that part of the company culture is you're going to make every customer feel like a neighbor and you're going to know their name and you're going to greet them with a polite smile and you're going to make them feel like, you know what, the coffee's not just good, the atmosphere is good. That did not happen at the Starbucks adorned in rainbows. It was noticeably different. I told my wife, you know, it was just, it was just different. People didn't look me in the eye. And I'm a smiler. My, my whole goal in life in part is to make you smile. I want you to respond in a positive way. I, I want to do it in a way not manipulative. I just want to engage. Nobody looked me in the eye. Nobody was kind. It was the most unpleasant experience I've ever had at a Starbucks. So what does a Christian do in a context like that? Here's my closing illustration with you. You do what Jesus would do. You're the salt of the earth. You know what that is? Corrupt and rotten. Do you know what it needs? A powerful preservative. Guess where you need to buy coffee for a while? Starbucks on Tudor Avenue. Because we need to get out of the salt shaker and into the culture. A Christian can't preserve what it's not connected to. And what we tend to be is we want to stay cloistered and isolated. I mean, who wants to be in that environment? Certainly not pleasing. It's not life-giving. It's not joy-invoking. But I'll tell you what it is. It can be ministry-influencing. You've heard this thing, it's not just he's not worth his salt, but you can, take it, you, you can take what Harry says with a grain of salt. You know what that means? One grain isn't that powerful. It's just not that impactful. But I'll tell you what, Christians in collective intentionality can leverage their influence so that it's not a grain of salt. It's a shaker of potent savor and seasoning for a culture that's desperate for it, even though they don't know it. Because what's housed in the culture is sadness. What's housed in the culture is death. The mindset on the flesh is death. The person that's disconnected from God has no life. They're without God, Ephesians says, and without hope. And in comes a believer from Anchorage Grace to a rainbow Starbucks. And he sits down or she sits down. She has conversations. She buys the coffee. He buys the coffee. He reads his Bible, not as a kind of a, uh, some kind of a propaganda tool, but because that's what you do over your morning coffee, Right? And you smile and you show kindness and you communicate a love that's not your own. Because you know what? Those people matter to God. 
And you don't run from them. You don't hide from them. You don't pick the Christian coffee shop. Because you are the salt of the world. I'm not trying to kill Christian coffee shop business. I'm trying to enlarge the fences of your influence. Because that coffee shop on Tudor represents what's going on in the people who work there. And you know what they need? They need you. They need to see you. Now, don't go if you're going to have a bad attitude. Don't go if you're going to grumble and dispute. You go with the heart of Christ to be an agent of influence for the glory of Christ. You pray for them. You try to make them smile, and you show them what a Christian is who's full of life. Because here's the third thing about salt, and I see the time, 1159, which means i got one minute. You know what else salt is? It is a seasoning. You know what else you are? You're a provider of pleasure. I found it interesting. Listen to Job 6.6. Job asked this. Is tasteless food eaten without salt? The answer is no. Because life that's bland and vanilla and tasteless needs seasoning. And man, when the seasoning is right, the meat's better. You know what? When you're in proximity and you are expressing Christian potency, you make everything better. You make the team better. You make the business better. You make the class better. You make the neighborhood better. You know why? Because you come with hope they don't have. You come with grace and comfort they don't possess. You bring a peace to worried and angry world. You bring joy to a frustrated world. You show them that it's not about stuff. You show them that there's a life that's a wellspring coming out of you, and it's in the fountainhead of God. It's generated by the gospel experience with God, and you're the purveyor of that light, and you demonstrate and validate it by the way you live your life. Listen, Anchorage ought to be different because you're here. Because you are what you are. You just need to be what you are. And the guarantee is you'll make a difference. Because Jesus said you are the salt of the earth. Can you say amen to that? Can I say one last thing about salt? It makes you thirsty. Highly salted food makes you want to drink a lot. You know what I'd like to encourage you to do? Be so salty that people want to drink from the thirst-quenching fountain of the water of life. You ought to be a prompter of passion for a fountain because they're thirsty. Because they've been involved with you. That's my prayer for you. Father, thank you for the time today. Thank you for your word and so much to be mined from it. Lord, I am grateful for who we are. I'm just praying that we, collective we, not just one grain of this salt shaker, but the entire body represented here and those who know your name, that we will intentionally, proactively initiate relationships in the spaces of our life and recognize we have influence. We are not impotent. We are what you say we are. And let us make our world better so that they're thirsty for the gospel and the water of life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
God bless you.